have an announcement to make to y'all, to the people of America. The mothership has landed. It's the classic guitar rock podcast. Atomic batteries to power. Turbines to speed. Ready to move up. Before we start, I'd like to say something. There's no reason why you shouldn't have complete confidence in your chances to come out of this thing alive in one piece. From coast to coast, from border to border. From one end to the other and all points in between. The Classic Guitar Rock Podcast is on. Yes! That's awesome! We crank up and break down the great guitar-driven rock of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And you are invited to come along. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes, it's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it! And now, your host... Jeremy Lunnan. Yeah, we don't know anything about that fellow there. Who is he? Where's he coming from? It's time for the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. Well, welcome back to the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. We're super excited to have you with us. I'm really excited. Uh, today, I'm being joined by one of my lifelong friends, J.R. Stanton. Hi, J.R. How are you? Hey, doing well, Jeremy. Doing good, well. good. I, I, I want to just give folks some background on JR. JR and I went to high school together back in Oklahoma. We played in a in a world-renowned power trio for a period of time called War Chicken, right? And I still yes, exactly. remember War Chicken. we only had one gig. It, it, it was a radio station Christmas party at Carriage Hills apartment in their little party. New party. Year's, you know, a New Year's uh, celebration. A New Year's celebration for the ages, yes. And we, we broke up after that. Um, Our artistic... Yeah, artistic differences. differences or perhaps lack of talent. One or the other. <laughs> that, well, you could argue both quite effectively. Yes. <laughs> but we so we 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 played together. We did a lot of stuff together. We made uh, documentaries together. We did all kinds of stuff. Here's a, here's a neat thing about JR though. JR was a, a an elite level wrestler. He wrestled at the college level. And he's also a physical therapist, so he can break your back, but then he can rehab you also. I can fix it. Good. In fact, uh, that, I, I thought about that initially uh, as a, in the profession after, you know, after my first injury is that, man, you know, a guy could make a lot of money doing this. Yeah. So, so of course, I pursued that, that lifelong dream. And no longer am I hurting people without getting paid. Now That's I right. definitely get paid. <laughs> you get paid for it. That's good. And you and your brother – you know, between you and your brother, and I had another good friend in Montana who was a wrestler. I have been full Nelson and and I've body slammed by the best of them. I've been thrown around by some of the best wrestlers. Yeah, yeah looking back, I'd, I'd like to go ahead and just give a, you know, a full apology on that. I, I do realize now that there was times when you couldn't actually breathe. Yeah. Uh, maybe I should have let go. Thank you. Thank you. Very much. I was a different guy back then. It was Jeremy. The, we all I was yeah. young, rock and roll. I had hair. He had hair. In fact, Jr. was what we call an early adapter, right? He had, uh, I'm thinking of the various hairdos you had, different colors, yeah, uh, different I, um, lengths, styles. Yeah, they uh, called it a fool's tale at that point. I, I don't know. It grew out and eventually became a mullet. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, of course, I couldn't keep it naturally uh the color it was i needed to somehow 
be more flamboyant. So we went with red. Red. Um, Of course, red, uh, as we all know, fades to pink. Yes. Yeah. And being made me a little bit tougher wrestler after that. I bet. I bet. Uh, So that was was some motivation there. That's good. But uh, super excited to have uh, Jr. on. And and you'll have to forgive us if we get into our 15, 16 year old goofy mode because we've both matured to about a 16 year old level. But we may step back a little. I've, yeah, a bit, I've been accused of that. Yeah, yes. it, it could happen. And we will be talking about uh, a great album that came out in 1989. And I wanted JR to come on. Well, a couple of reasons, because he's a friend of mine, but he's more of a subject matter expert on this album than I am. I mean, I've been, I've been aware of it on the surface level and I've known, you know, Firewoman and some of the songs off of, off of it. But uh I thought it'd be fun to have JR on to talk about it because he's this is an album that he's dug into a little bit more. So we will get into that here momentarily. But first, a few news items that I wanted to cover really quick. Now, since we last got together, and JR, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this too. We've lost two very important musicians over the last week or so. I- iconic. 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 Uh, Don Everly, of course, of the Everly Brothers, passed away. And Charlie Watts of the Rolling Stones passed mm-hmm. away. Now, Jr. and I, this is one thing we both have in common, and probably more so for Jr. even than for me, is we both grew up with parents that listened to a lot of music. Mm-hmm. Um, encouraged encouraged uh, from, the, from the get-go. Can you name that tune? And, absolutely. Uh, and, and I remember at your house, in fact, Jr. I spent a lot of time at Jr.'s house, Jr.'s dad loved being out in the garage listening to the oldies station and hearing a lot of this music so i'm sure the everly brothers is something that that jr was exposed to i was growing up Mm -hmm. and exactly you know i think the the impact the influence of the everly brothers really can't be understated i would say that without the everly brothers there wouldn't have been a beatles i really Mm -hmm. believe that i think that they influenced the, you know, the whole the harmony sound of the Everly Brothers, you think about the the British Invasion bands, the Hollies, you know, so many of these bands that came out of this, the early 60s and later 60s were influenced by the Everly Brothers. A, a big and you still hear some of, of that. I think even, you know, it's, it's if we're still talking about um, like Dream and things like this, the, the songs that, the, you know, the Everly Brothers were so uh, known for, they persevered. And I think, again, that's probably why you could, you can, as a young 16-year-old in 1980-something, you could pick up a 45 off of the Everly Brothers and, and kind of still relate to it. That music and the good music tends to transcend. Absolutely. And, and you think about, and this seems funny now because the image of the Everly Brothers is now you know, they were very clean cut, you know, they were, they were, they were maybe considered safe, but at the time, like wake up little Susie, that was a controversial song, right? That was a controversial song. You hear a great song like that. And that that's just uh, like you said, music like that, great music like that transcends time. And 50 years from now, people will still be listening to the Everly brothers and a hundred years from now, you know, there's just certain artists that transcend time and, and Charlie Watts from the Rolling Stones, who we also uh, lost. He's known for his un- understatedness. I don't know if that's a word. Is that a word, JR? I, I think it is. So we might, we'll make it. We'll make it. It's oh. official then. Okay. His understatedness, right? 
He was not a flashy drummer. He was solid. And that's what he's known for. Flawless in some ways. Yeah. I think that the fact that, uh, you know, he's holding down the beat and, and I don't think those guys get enough credit, but obviously he did it with, without, without the flair. He just showed up and he rocked it. Yeah. And, and, not just the way he played, but the way he was, right? He was, mm-hmm. he was steady. I mean, that's, that's the mm-hmm. word that describes him. He was steady. He, and, you know, he was married to the same woman the whole time he was in the Stones. He was the opposite of a rock star. You know, he came, he played, he did his job. One of the best stories I ever heard, JR, was one night Mick Jagger calls charlie watts in the middle of the night all drunk and he says where's my effing drummer i need my drummer and charlie hangs up on him and then first thing in the morning he gets dressed in his suit and tie (laughs) he goes to mick's hotel room knocks on the door punches mick right in the face and says i'm not your drummer you're my singer (laughs) perfect perfect and uh you know, it, it's just, he was just a class act. And uh, I say this all the time. I, I don't mean to sound like a broken record, but sadly, we're only going to hear more and more of this about these iconic musicians dying, passing away because they're getting into their 70s and 80s. So unfortunately, this is this is going to happen to all of us, right? So I think it's important we at least remember those folks and celebrate their music. And, and yes, it's sad that they're gone but at least they've left this great music for us to, to listen to. Charlie was always my favorite. Rolling and, that's, and that's the legacy of music. That's kind of why we're talking about it now. Right. Because it, it does give you, um, it transports you. Yep. Absolutely. You had one little item that happened in 1989 on this day. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and I just want to make the connection here because the album we're talking about is from 1989. So, on this date, September 2nd is when we're recording this. This happened, JR. So share that with us. Well, again, in, in my grasp for trying to some, find something relevant uh, to, to the podcast, I, I did, you know, I did uh, a deep dive. Mm-hmm. Uh, I looked at this time in history, what significant music involvements had happened. And, and in this case, I came across Ozzy Osbourne. And since there are some ties into this album, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. I read this, and in, in, in this day in history, Ozzy was charged uh, and indicted with on accounts uh, against uh, abuse or spousal abuse wow. to Sharon. And uh, later on, it was, apparently it was that was reduced. He didn't go to prison. Uh, he was uh, allowed to attend a rehab service and 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 become rehabilitated that way. But uh, I'm not sure. Again, it's, it's diving deep. But it is relevant because right. Ozzy, anything Ozzy does is irrelevant. But you alluded to something, too. You know, if in reading that little article, we're not clear that maybe Sharon didn't put the smack on him. I, I don't know. <laughs> well, that's, when you, and we don't want to make light of domestic abuse, right? But no. when you said that, the first thing I thought was, I would think Sharon's much more <laughs> likely to be the one putting the smack on someone. But uh, just an interesting little tidbit that that happened on the same day. So when we come back, we're going to dig into this great album from 1989. We're talking, of course, about Sonic Temple by The Cult. It's coming up right here on the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast.
attention. If you live in Spokane, Washington and have teeth, this message is for you. Braun and Jarvis Family Dentistry knows teeth. Incisors, bicuspids, canines, molars. No tooth is too big or too small. I was delighted and impressed. So impressed, I bought the company. With Braun and Jarvis, you'll have the sweetest grill in the inland northwest. And let's be honest, nobody wants a funky grill. Braun and Jarvis Family Dentistry. 509-464-2391. That's 509-464-2391. Braun and Jarvis Family Dentistry. Quality dentistry that doesn't suck. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, we're up to our long-distance dedication. And this one is about kids and pets and a situation that we can all understand, whether we have kids or pets or neither. It's from a man in Cincinnati, Ohio, and here's what he likes. Dear Casey, this may seem to be a strange dedication request, but I'm quite sincere, and it'll mean a lot if you play it. Recently, there was a death in our family. He was a little dog named Snuggles, but he was most certainly a part of... Let's come start again. I'm coming out of the record. Play the record, okay? <clears throat> See, when you come out of those up-tempo goddamn numbers, man, it's impossible to make those transitions, and then you got to go into somebody dying. You know, they do this to me all the time. I don't know what the hell they do it for, but goddamn it, if we can't come out of a slow record, I don't understand it. Is Don on the phone? Okay, I want to concerted effort to come out of a record that isn't a f***ing up-tempo record every time I do a damn death dedication. This is a god last time I want somebody to use his f***ing brain to not come out of a record that is, uh, that, that's up-tempo and I gotta talk about a f***ing dog dying. Welcome to the basement. It's the classic guitar rock podcast. Welcome back to the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. I've got my friend JR with us today, and we're talking about the album Sonic Temple from The Cult in 1989. This is a great album. And JR, I have to tell you, like I said, I had kind of a cursory, you know, I knew their hits. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I play in a, in a, you know, a dad band where we play She Sells Sanctuary and Wildflower. So I, so I play two cult songs, but I've never really dug much deeper than that. Um, Oddly enough, not on this particular album. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I, that's why I wanted you here. I think it would be great. So I want to start out by just you kind of sharing your first exposure to this album and, and just your thoughts on this album. Thank you, Jeremy. I, I, I'll tell you this. I think that, that my first experiencing experience being introduced to the cult was more from a driving sound, not knowing who they were. I didn't catch on. I wasn't on the boat early. You know, I didn't, the the first, this is the first album I heard for the cult. I was not around for electric. I, I wasn't a big fan at that time. I I'll be honest with you. It sounds like similar stories have been told on this podcast where older brothers introduced music. 
Um, I, this came on uh, the radio. Uh, man, it, it, it caught my attention. Uh, my brother happened to have the the album, you know, so I, I knew of them. I just didn't know much. But but I remember that as Sweet Soul Sister and, and Fire Woman and such, as they hit uh, and I was hearing more of them, it, it was like a teenage attraction. You know, I have to say it was similar to, to like, you know, that girl you see and you're yeah. going, hey, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think that this is somebody I'd like to know. Uh, you're dying to get into uh, the, the adventure of, of, of spontaneity those relation, relationships kind of develop that way and you know you've got that infatuation period and i'll have to tell you I, the music in the, the radio and man everywhere i cruised around it this song was playing this group was playing and the reason why is it was so unique to me it was a is a very unique sound you know you, you try to think back to the influences that, that they might have had but again at that particular time 1989 1990 uh and through that time frame I was just plugging stuff in, in you know, uh, to the, the radio or the CD player. And, you know, you, you would take this, uh, this music and it'd be a soundtrack for that period. And so for me, uh, I liken it to, again, being engulfed in that moment um, where you're infatuated with somebody. You, you, you're not quite sure what that, what the true words are to express that, that particular moment. But in that moment, it's everything. It's that driving beat, the, the affection for that. Uh, I tended to think, you know, I think we build up those relationships in, in teenage years anyway. But right. but uh, at this particular time, I mean, I was out of out of high school, but um, I became quite infatuated with the sound, the beat. It's very it draws you in. And and I think that that's what pulled me into this particular album. You know, I don't know that we ever got a second date. I, I you know, I, I love this album. <laughs> you know, I fell in love with them. And for me, the, the the album itself was iconic. And there's several reasons why why I feel that way, Jeremy. You know, we'll probably go into that. Yeah, I I want to come back to one thing, and without getting too cosmic, but you said something. This is the this is the magic of music, right? There are two things. I don't want to get too psychological here, right? But there are two things that trigger memories. For me, mm-hmm. and I think this is the, the, with a lot of people, music and smells, right? Yes. You hear a song and you talked about it. It transports you back to that time. And all those memories and everything that was going on at that time floods back. Smells have the same effect for me. Mm-hmm. Anyways, you smell something and you're back at your grandma's house or whatever. But exactly. that's that's the power of music. And And even though sometimes you can't put it into words, what it was, you and you said it right. Something about the sound, the ambience that drew you into this album. And here's the thing: and, until we talked about this album a month or so back, Jr., I'd never gone back and listened to the whole album. Mm-hmm. So, having spent the last couple of weeks listening to it, I, I kind of regret the fact that I wasn't enjoying this, you know, since 1989, you know, I'd hear fire woman. And I thought that's a pretty cool tune. I'd hear uh sweet soul sister. And I think that's, that's a cool sound, but I never dug deeper, which is the case on a lot of songs. And, and to be honest, that's one of the great things that has happened to me since I started doing this podcast is I'm intentionally digging into albums that I just kind of had a cursory exposure to and finding there's a lot of cool stuff. When you grab a hold of that album, Jeremy, I don't know if you you know how many cult uh, albums you have, might have had in possession at one time or another, but I mean this one stands out. You've got Duffy right up on on the front cover, pick in hand. Mm-hmm. It's a very posed 
very powerful silhouette of him yeah. striking the guitar. And I mean, these are these are things where you go, hey, that's a rock album. That is and, a rock uh, album. Yeah, exactly. And you know what's interesting, though, Jeremy, I go back to that time frame and that time in, in, in what was hitting on the radio. OK, in 1989, January, uh, we're talking about Bobby Brown, with mm-hmm. my prerogative. Yeah, I'll be there for you, Bon Jovi. Uh, when I see you smile, bad English, good songs, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Blame it on the rain, Millie Vanilli. <laughs> Millie Vanilli. You know, yeah. hey, yeah. but that's what was. But that's the thing. There was nothing that sounded like like Sonic right. Temple. So right. when you put, when you put that that starkness, that that edgy kind of rock and roll grit that mm-hmm. that they had, but they were a lot more styled. And I think that that was interesting because I tell it like this. If you've ever on the patio, on the back patio, discussing with your friends, you know, who sang that song back when we were in high school? You know, was that Poison or was that a Warrant song? Or yeah, exactly. No one yeah. ever says, man, was that a cult song? No, because, I mean, Ian Asbury, he just put it out there. His voice was very, very much Absolutely. a trademark, a very iconic brand for that. For that, And, you know, that's, a, I think, sometimes blessing, sometimes curse. Because, you know, you are locked into that. You, you hear Ian Asbury's voice and vocals and, you know, immediately, you know, this isn't Warrant. This is not Bon Jovi. This is there's no other one streaming in that in that venue in that time period. So, you know, I kept thinking, what was, what else was I listening to? You know, and, and again, so when I look back to the time frame, yeah, this had a stark contrast. There were other bands trying to do other things, but uh, the cult was doing this. And in my mind, it was the best album. Certainly, it was their most commercial album successfully. Mm-hmm. Um, it produced what four hits, yeah, and all, all top twenty hits. And you know, as you roll down the number ones, I just think that sometimes they they got misunderstood. Yeah, um, and 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 I think part of and here's here was me right here. This is me. I was guilty of this right. And I, I guess I don't need to apologize this because for this because this is this is their sound right. Here's what one of the things that truly makes them unique. If you go way back their very first album and even pre the cult when it was Ian's first band, the Southern death cult and the death cult that followed, mm-hmm. they were very much an alternative goth band. And, and what, what is truly unique is you add Billy Duffy to that. And it's like, it's still got the stylings of the alternative stuff, but just mm-hmm. ripping guitars. And, yeah, and I think that that, you know, we talk about what Billy Duffy had, that that part of it, you know, it, it must have been something strong because Ian only had to hear that, that, that riff and that song, and he dropped his band. That, that original band, Southern Death Cult, was his band. He had put that together, and he left them. Yeah. So, uh, and it was all because of the, he said he heard what Billy was laying down and this it's on the, Hey, we're, we're getting chicks with our music, but this is a different level. <laughs> yeah. This is what I need to put myself yeah. uh, online with. And you know what he was able to do with, with uh, that Southern death cult and, and such, they certainly had good fanfare, but it's interesting because they, they said they were akin to some goth early goth. Yeah. They likened that, that cyber type music to early goth. I almost uh, hear like the cure, you know, when Mm -hmm. I hear some of that early stuff, I think of the cure, which I like that. I mean, I I like Mm -hmm. a lot of that music. And then even at the time, the early days to see Billy Duffy, you know, he looks like he's a new wave (laughs) <laughs> alternative guy but he's got that severe severe he's flat, got, uh, yeah, flat top he's got the flat top going on but but then you hear his guitar and this guy rocks you know and so that combination of asbury and duffy 
and let's be honest, JR, that's the band, right? That's the common denominator. Everyone else is kind of spinal tappy, right? Revolving doors, exactly. change the drummer, every album, you know. <laughs> Everything revolves around that one nucleus. Uh, again, sometimes your best strength is, is sometimes also your weakness. And right. I don't know that that was necessarily an accurate statement for weakness. Obviously, they, they persevered, but it there, uh, as you go through the the laundry list of notables that that were in part of that band, or in that band at one time or the other, uh, it's interesting. I tried to nail down what what would be a good number, and I I finally settled on twenty two past members <laughs> associated. <laughs> and, and oddly enough, mostly drummers. Yeah, well, <laughs> so, a lot of drummers. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, it reeks of spinal tapish moments when you know yeah. where I don't know what queerly happened to that drummer. He just was no longer in For, the. Fortunately, there was mix. no spontaneous human combustion. It, but, well, that was that. That would have taken it to a whole other level <laughs> of fire woman. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, I will say that Ian Asbury had a ton of soul uh, in terms of the indigenous and Native American population, and he so, he, he, he trans- transcended a lot of things spiritually into his music. That so way. tell us about that. Tell us about his history, because I thought that was a very interesting part of his history. He did not grow up in England. No, he he uh, obviously started out in England and then they, they went to Canada and he he actually spent time on a reservation and and, and became, became molded. If it had to have had a profound effect, you know, this is a common spiritual theme that he wants to carry through from the get go. I don't know. I mean, the the death cult, the original Southern death cult, that's a that's an, a derivative from a Native American origin. Now, it's right. North American. It's not just Canadian, but uh, it had to do with a true religion that was of, of Native American heritage. And so I don't know that I wasn't able to, to confirm his actual heritage, even though I, I've heard ringlings that he, he claimed to have Native American blood uh, as such. I never found any evidence in, in just looking, but I will say, I mean, this moved him because yeah. a lot of his wardrobe, a lot of his thoughts, a lot of his lyrics hinged around that uh, sanctum of, of, okay, this is how we treat Mother Earth. This is spiritual. You hear him talk in interviews. He talks about being very spiritual. Uh, right. He also talks about things, you know, that being a sensual rock man, not not essential, a sensual. And so yeah. he's in, obviously in touch with that, with that side. And he was able to, to, to do that. I think when you see his wardrobe, it speaks volumes. You know, he's, saw- he's definitely not afraid. I saw this just confirming what you said about it, uh, kind of some some conflicting things. I had seen an article, not an interview, but an article that mentioned he was Native American or mm-hmm. had some. But then I saw in an interview when he himself said, I'm a white guy. You know, yeah. I, he said, I'm a white guy, but I am interested in this culture and have been inspired by it and draw things from and it. And interesting, interestingly enough, I mean, I think there was a. Uh, there's some controversy that eventually emanated from that uh, later on and yeah. on and the let's, album cover. Well, let's, let's go ahead and talk about that because that to me is kind of ironic that here's a guy that's so passionate about, I call them native Americans. That's kind of a, 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 oh, we grew a up an ethnocentric term, right? Mm-hmm. Um, native Americans or Indians, but, but actually this is in Canada, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Canada. and that's, what's ironic is he was such a proponent of, of the the indigenous peoples, mm-hmm. but then he gets sued. Yeah, he gets sued, and you know you got to wonder if that didn't leave a little bit of a sour taste because yeah. you know he has all these choices as to what he wants to hold out in front, and you put front and center 
a native uh, an image of a, of a young, obviously proud of his heritage, Native American male. And it isn't until there's some success behind that that, of course, some controversy comes out. I kind of wonder controversy if, if you if you know again it sells albums too. Mm-hmm. But in this case, it hurt him. They were unable the the, the judgment that was not in at the time of the release of the the album, so they had to delay the release of the album in Japan. Uh, a lot of things that would have financial impact, and and so you wonder again what kind of band the cult would be if they hadn't shot themselves in the foot on m- multiple occasions. Right. But sometimes by their fault, sometimes oh, yeah. by just the, the circumstances. Uh, for whatever reason, I don't I don't think you fully grasp the impact of what happened with the lawsuit, other than the fact that he had a lot more to lose yeah, over and, that. And they could have gone and it was he he referred to that as a stock photo. He really didn't have any known yeah, they, they, relationship. They, for those that don't know, is their album ceremony that came out, was that in ninety four? Ceremony comes out. It has a cool picture. The picture on the front is a, is a little Native American boy in, in a ceremonial Native American clothing, right? And they were sued by this little boy's parents for $60 million. And, the, and, and Ian said, we, we bought a stock photo. I mean, it's, that was available for sale. The, the photographer had rights to it. And so they were sued. And I think there was, like you, to your point, this probably was a blind side to them. Now, now one thing that does come into this, which is interesting is in the video for this, I can't remember the song. One of the songs from that album, there's an image that shows the photograph of the little boy burning. You know, there's some symbolism there. They didn't mean it was directed at the little boy. Right. Mm -hmm. But this boy who by this time was eight or nine or 10 years old, Mm -hmm. he sees this video and in his culture, right. That's a symbol, a not a good symbol. Not right? a good. It, it wouldn't take. They didn't take it as a positive. Exactly, and and that led to this. And I'm sure the last thing Ian wanted to do was hurt anyone's feelings. But on the other hand, and I and I've even heard him say this. I was surprised when he said it, knowing how he feels about indigenous peoples. He even said in this interview clip I saw that he said, "I think it's a case of people seeing an opportunity to make money." from tribes or because mm-hmm. of tribes and that's what's happening here of course but you can't talk about uh, any of the the cult albums without having a discussion on that matter because i think that you know we want to know what drives music well fire woman yeah he, it, it's straightforward it was he he, he makes no no bones about it. It's about his influences over, you know, in, in his image of Native Americans. Right. That's where he drove. He drove from to drive those those lyrics. And again, what I love about the cult is they have that kind of uh, very recognizable hammering vocal vocal that that always comes back to something like Sweet Soul Sister, something. Sweet soul sister. Yeah, yeah. You know, it makes you want to jump out of your chair. Yeah. And, and, you know, that kind of music, it, 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 I think it imprints you. You know, it I'm, does. Well, I'm sure and, it imprinted me. And the, and the, 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 uh, we call it a hook, right? Songs mm-hmm. have hooks. They have vocal hooks, they have guitar hooks, and you have got a combination of great vocal hooks and great guitar hooks. I mean, mm-hmm. that line. In, it's not on this album, but she sells Sanctuary. Mm-hmm. That just delayed it, guitar line intro is just infectious. Wildflower, the same way. Mm-hmm. Fire Woman. I love Fire Woman. You know, 
you know, that part's cool, but I love listening under the verses, the more muted things that are going on on the guitar. It's, it's awesome. And the textures that this is why it's the best of both worlds. You, you take the swirly chorusy textures of alternative new wave music and you combine Angus young guitars and that's what you get. And it's a great combination. Well, I think you hit it with textures. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's, it, I, I love how, how they, they come into textures. You may notice that, that Ian's always saying something like, this is where it all ends. Exactly. When, you know, when they yeah. start the album, that's the first thing. You know, he comes in with this mumbling, you know, is that part of the song or is right. he talking to the sound crew? This is where it all ends. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, bam. But it's here's, like, uh, that's Sun King. And, you know, he comes in and it's just kind of a slow burn. It's got a building, it's building up, it's got an open chord starting off, boom, he opens up, lets it sound. So you've got a tandem there between, you know, the, the lead singer and the, the guitar. How many how many bands are built around that anyway? Mm-hmm. But you've got that tandem where if Billy's not hitting those things right about that same time, it's not the same song. Right. So, uh, but he leaves enough room. The lyrics leave enough room for improvisation. And, yeah. yeah. And I think that Ian takes advantage of that. Right. So, uh, you know, you could hear him say things that I've listened to it and go like, what did he just say? What did he say? There's yeah. a lot. And I'm sure a lot of that is just off the cup, right? It's as oh, they're yeah. recording and he just says something. But, but here's something funny. Mm-hmm. Matt Sorum, mm-hmm. Matt Sorum, who came in, didn't play on Sonic the Temple, album. but came in and toured that album. Mm-hmm. And, and and a little band called Guns N' Roses was opening for the cult, right? Yep. And then opening imagine that, how funny that is. And then, of course, they become massive. But And Matt Sorum eventually goes to GNR. Well, let's, but, let's look at that. I mean, who was the band, the cult, when this album came out? And then you've got to wonder, Yeah, are we talking about the album, the studio component? Because I don't know. I mean, the drummer at that point on the demo in, 80, in 88, was the kiss eric uh, singer yeah eric, eric, eric singer. singer yeah and he you know and he so he's in there in the studio and here's the thing. down the demos here's the thing jr you've probably heard this on other episodes you can connect every band to black sabbath and <laughs> eric singer was in black sabbath and so mm-hmm. eric singer here has has a part in the cult story of course eric singer has played with pretty much everyone i, mean, I was gonna say we would call him a journeyman right yeah yeah he's been in everything plays with kiss he played for alice cooper he was in Badlands. He was in the cult shortly. So, so yeah, there's a Black Sabbath connection. But, but, but let me let me make this point about Matt Sorm because what Matt Sorm said sure. because we talk about two sides, right? It's a double edged mm-hmm. sword. There's a there's a funny interview I saw with Matt where he says Ian can sing, right? Ian can sing, but but he was his own worst enemy, mm-hmm. and and he was talking about lyrics. He says here, Ian's singing about butterflies and rainbows and all of this stuff and flowers and all of this. And he's like, if he maybe would have not been so ethereal, maybe they could have been even bigger. And then had he not done some, some weird things, uh, you know, there's the whole story of them opening for Aerosmith. This is the first night of the, of the tour. They're opening for Aerosmith. I don't know. This must, well, Sorum was there. So this must've been, they were touring this album. So this was Aerosmith's pump. So pump is at the top Aerosmith's Mm -hmm. at the top of the world in 1989, Mm -hmm. huge 
after permanent vacation, I was working in radio at the time. That pump album was massive. And Aerosmith was probably the biggest band on the planet at the time. So here's the cult opening for Aerosmith. First night of the show, stage manager tells Ian, he says, okay, don't walk out that ramp. There's, there's a ramp with a big hand at the end of it. He says, don't, don't walk out. Don't use the ramp. Okay, they go on and play. First song, Ian Asbury runs out on the ramp and is jumping on the, on the hand that Steven Tyler is going to be using later, right? And so as soon as the set's over, the stage manager is furious and he fires him. And Matt Storm says, wait. Hang on, let me go talk to Steven really quick. Apparently, he knew Steven Tyler. He had a relationship. He goes in and says, look, Ian's from England. Okay, they don't use the word ramp. I don't know what word they do use, but he says that he didn't understand what you meant by ramp. And so they kind of smoothed that over and they were able to continue touring. And that's just indicative. There's other examples of him saying things or doing stupid well, things. Well, he ends up blowing blowing it afterwards anyway. I, I think that, you know, I think what happens is when you put those, the, the, that much magnitude of ego in, in one, you know, as an opening act, I don't think the cult wanted to be the opening act at that yeah. point. So uh, at least Ian, I think, again, however they met, Matt Swarm does have some good stories. He did. Well, yeah. And so let's talk about the Bob Rock thing because this is important. So the Electric album, they had Rick Rubin. Now, mm-hmm. Rick Rubin, you know, he's worked with literally everyone. Mm-hmm. Hip-hop artists, country artists, Johnny Cash. I mean, he's ZZ Top. He's worked with literally everyone. And there was a time when Bob Rock, you know, 90s, he was it. At one time, he was on the 100 most influential people in the world list. Mm-hmm. And so way back in 80, when did they do the electric album? 87, 86, 87, mm-hmm. probably 87. So, so Rick Rubin does that album and it's a rock album. Okay. So they went from this chorusy guitar alternative band to this ACDC riff oriented band, which mm-hmm. is great. You know, wildflower, you know, it's phenomenal. Okay. Love that album. It's ripping. What I like about Bob Rock, and he even says this, he said, he said, I wanted to keep the riffage, right? I wanted to keep that hard rock edge that Rick Rubin brought out of him, but I didn't want to lose all the cool jangly stuff that Billy Duffy did before that. And so that's why I think Sonic Temple is the best of both worlds. You're bringing back a lot of the more, textural ambient stuff that you had earlier, but you're also keeping the the crunchy guitars that Rick Rubin. It was the best of both worlds and you're catching a band in transition and you you don't always catch that uh, on on a recording. And I do think that Bob Rock was able to capture that. And in much the same ways, like what you said, when we listened to to songs like albums, I know you you did some work with with uh, Def Leppard topic recently and the difference between high and dry and then what Mutt Lang brought. Right. Sometimes it's not the members in the band so much as as it's trying to, to, to texture, put texture to yeah. the music in such a way that it may show a little bit different light to the same talent. Right. And uh, these guys certainly have talent. There's no denying that. Uh, and that chemistry that was that was going on was 
was translated over to the album. And again, I talk about uh, it being infatuated. That's what, you know, maybe that's what the piece that melded this for me is that I fell in love with that. I, I, again, keep hearkening back to this one album when we spoke initially about what album do I like? Well, this is it. I mean, I listened to after I've listened to before, but I come back to this one. There's something here that, uh, again, uh, that, that still has the magic. You're going to grab a hold of the steering wheel. This thing's in the in the radio. It's playing. And sweet soul sister. You're going to, you know, you're going to look over and you're going to be banging heads. Yeah, it's a driving song. When What I mean by that is is obviously yes. rhythm is driving, but it's a great song to listen to in your car, right? Mm-hmm. Your window. And that's, again, yeah. I actually use the same term when I'm on my notes. Is This is a driving kind of a crescendo. Yeah. And it's syllable, the, the syllables are such that you're going to go boom. This is easy to say. It's going to hit in your head. It's going to be there for a while. Here's something I want to ask you about. There's positives and negatives about approaches, right? We talked about Lennon and McCartney, Joe Perry, Steven Tyler. Here it's Asbury and Duffy. Mm -hmm. And there's, I can't remember who the, again, they've had a revolving cast of characters on bass and drums. So they had, well, now they they kept Jamie Stewart on bass. up until this album (laughs) (laughs) and uh he uh and you know in this and in the studio uh prior to touring it was mickey curry on on drums yeah so you got mickey curry coming off of hollow notes uh you know and and moving into this position and uh of course interesting enough he goes on i mean he leaves slightly after you know shortly after the well, the onset of the tour. He's. I mean, how do you how do you go into the, the tour and go? Okay, we got a new we got a new drummer. Yeah. But uh, in this case, uh, you know, they said he went on. He eventually went on to to be with Brian Adams. I'm not sure what. I couldn't find any reasons why uh, Mickey would would was out. But right. uh, needless to say, uh, we we got Matt Sorum in. Yeah. And, so Matt's in, and whoever the bass player. Okay. So it's got to be after Sonic Temple. Maybe they're working on the follow up album. Mm-hmm. And the bass player, whoever that was at that time, I can't remember. He has a riff and he makes a suggestion. He says, Hey, what if we did something with this? And he says, and this is Matt recounting it. And, and Billy just looked at him and completely deadpan just said, Ian and I write the songs. Okay. We'll, we'll tell you what you need to play. <laughs> And, and, you know, he kind of later whispers to Sorum, he's like, well, what are we even here? And I was like, right, I don't know, man. But that, that's that flip side, right? Is, mm-hmm. is that what, is that what made them so good? Was it, they, they kept it all in-house between the two or if they would have let other people come in, would it have been, because you could say the same thing about Fogarty and CCR. Fogarty, same thing. It was exactly. all Fogarty. He did everything. And you can you can argue that hey, that's why they were successful. Yeah, the, or, the genius of Fogarty. Yes. Exactly. Or you could say, you know, if they would have let other people do it, maybe they wouldn't have had a revolving door all the time, which may would have meant maybe they'd have better stuff. So so that's the age old argument. But but Ian and Billy were very much the driving force, and just like all the other partnerships we know in music, <laughs> they had a lot of conflict between themselves true and i think it you know again that's the piece about being um tied so yeah you know these guys probably know the each other better than family 
Mm-hmm. They, and, and so that you may be uh, at the highest of the highs, but you've probably also enjoyed some of the lowest of the lows. <laughs> and, and I know that these guys had some out on tour because, you know, that trickles out. Mm-hmm. But I, I know that uh, Matt Sorum, when he went uh, to, as the audition, to the audition, uh, thinking, hey, he wants to get this chance. Uh, he was really excited. And, and to the same point, Billy afterwards leans over and tells uh, Matt, hey, you, you know, you got the gig, but you need to quit smiling so much. <laughs> and, and it's like, well, maybe they do want to control the image. You know, they wow. talk about the image and you look at, at a lot of the, the pictures now. And I, I, you know, there's pictures where Matt Storm's there. And I guess now I put a smile on his face. But you look, uh, Duffy is just hard nosed. I mean, he looks like he's getting ready to kick your butt. Right. You know, so that was he wanted to control not just lyrics, not just melody. But image, and even in the later interviews, they talk about the imagery. And right. so I think as, as artists, they, that's a little bit too much control for other artists. There's no yeah. room. There's no more room. It's a vacuum in some ways because that, that, those two talented people suck out all of the, the they yeah. suck up all the energy. And, and, and Sorum, to me, he's a rocker, right? He's oh, a basher. Yeah. He wants to play rock and roll. And I'm sure image plays part of that, too. But. But here's, and I don't mean this to sound, well, it's kind of a negative critique, but I sense in the cult, the same thing that happened with Black Crows, okay? Black Crows, the first album, they were awesome. Mm-hmm. Second album, really good. But then they started to believe their own press, right? Then it became more about image than about music. And they just became pompous, arrogant jerk nozzles, right? Yeah. And I sense some of that. You know, you see, Ian, it's like, how outlandish can I get with my next costume? Mm-hmm. Billy never got that bad. Billy had his own kind of more stripped down <laughs> image, right? He he has a lot of different hair. He had the he had the Jr. You know, Jr. Uh, yeah, he, going he, on explored, he, he explored he explored the boundaries. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, it's interesting because you look at rock fashion, and I think Billy pretty much matriculated through most of those facts. Yeah, he, he did. But Ian was very much, I mean, he had, he's wearing like crazy things on his head and it's well, that fur hat. I the mean, fur hat. You know, yeah. do you know that actually drove another cottage industry? You can go on like Pinterest and there's special <laughs> hat makers who use that as their trademark is, you wow. know, Ian Asbury style uh, yeah, headwear. Yeah. And, and, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm not going to lie, Jeremy. I, I wanted one of those hats, man. I'm not, I'm, <laughs> I'm not patronizing here. The reason I know that that hat sells is because I looked shopping. it up, man. <laughs> and if I thought that, that my wife would let me get away with it, You'd, I'd be well, wearing one of those hats right now today, brother. Well, you know, you could get one and just wear it when your wife's not around. That's yeah. true. But there's you know, that. I give, I could bring out my, my inner Ian, but I, you know, some of those moves he throws, I, I even the the yeah. years in wrestling and the, the style that I thought I had, I'm yeah. sure that I would be the one uh, in therapy because, yeah. uh, you know, he just dances across, like floating across the the, the stage. You know, one of the, the lyrics he uses is dance, uh, prancing like a cat on a hot tin shack. Yeah. And uh, I have to tell you, some of those moves he throws down, you're going like, yeah, he's got some, he's, he's just dancing like, <laughs> yeah, he is. Yeah, that's great. Okay, so let's actually go in, JR, and talk about the album. We don't have to necessarily break down every single track, but I want to at least kind of touch on the high points. Um, the first song, Sun King, let me just say this. I think this is a great lead-off track. It's a great song. I love this song. 
yeah, it's kind of a slow burn. You know, they start off building up and it, it kind of sets the mood for where the, where the album might go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for me, that was, again, you know, I like Sun King. It's certainly a, a, a model alone. Mm-hmm. We look at the, the where, what tracks climb the charts is one of them. And yeah, it had a slow bar, uh, burn. It built up. There. Again, they slammed the open chord initially. They let it ring out. And then it kind of tells you, hey, we're getting ready to slap you in the face. It comes. And that's yep. gets you ready. It gets yep. you ready. Yep. It's a good a good opening track. And then, of course, a fire woman. I mean, there's a reason to me when I look at this album, this is a song I think about, right? Mm-hmm. This is well, I think it anchors it. Yeah, it's a great song. I love this song. I already mentioned I love the I you know, it's easy to fixate on that main guitar riff. But mm-hmm. but what's going on in the in the verses underneath? I that's to me even tastier than just the main the main riff. But it's just a lot of energy. This this song is just a great song. I, I love it. Yeah, and Ian hammers out those lyrics there. At the, you know, and and it that that kind of well, that's their and that's their signature. You hear that? You know, like I said before, it's not something where you're going to have to guess. I wonder who I'm listening to. When you yeah. hear it, you know who this is, and it's very trademark uh, to, to to that that duo in the cult. So, uh, if you had to say a signature song off the album, it's Fire Woman. Yeah. It, it, it performed really well. It's one that's endured uh, along with well, you know, several others. But but for me, I agree. Fire Woman spoke up, and and that's the one I was singing. You know, on the yeah. way to work, I was like, okay, here we are. And uh, this, this morning, even so, yeah, yeah it, it's there. I, I I'm not sure what others thought of me, but yeah. yes, I was on fire. Firewoman. Firewoman. It's a great song. And you, you know what? It's you funny. You liked uh, American Horse a little. I bit. love American Horse. I love American Horse. It's it's a great song. And again, this is a song I would never have heard. Right? I'd never heard it before, just until the last couple of weeks when I've been listening to it. But I love that song. And there again, some of that. I, I keep saying Native known. Native American, but it's not just Native American. It's nope. It's indigenous. Uh, but, and that's partly because of the, again, Canada, you got to figure yeah, that he was in influence. Canada when he got the exposure. So yeah, it's an overtone and, yeah. and, and or an undertone, however you want to yeah. put that, but it's definitely an influence. <laughs> yeah. But a great song, of course, uh, another one. And I didn't realize it. I didn't realize this was actually kind of a hit, but Edie, you know, the oh, Chow, Chow baby song. I, again, I, I think it stands alone. I really don't think he, there's another sound, another track on the album. I love it. Like Edie, I love know? that song. I, but you know, I'll be honest with you, Jeremy. I, I, you know, I look at that and wonder, you know, why? I mean, I love the, I love what he did with this, and I, you know, I'm not sure. I, I'm sure. I actually feel like I, in my mind, I see Ian, mm-hmm. you know, seeing this image uh, of uh, Edie Sedgwick, who, who, you know, the song is about, mm-hmm. and he's posing questions like, why? You know, from what I could tell, here you're talking about another American tragedy. Tell us the backstory here a little, because that's well, something well, uh, a lot of people aren't aware of. Edie Sedgwick was uh, kind of the it girl. In fact, she was actually named by Vogue magazine as the it girl. She came out of the Andy Warhol group that were, were known as youth Quakers. Uh, she was certainly part of the factory girl scene. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Andy was surrounding himself with a lot of young individuals who, who he promoted because it, it created an air for him to, to move uh, his, his own art and, and be in touch with what was hip. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that may be what, what uh, Edie saw there. She was certainly a, a young debutante. I would liken her to Paris Hilton in some ways. Right. right. There's no need for notoriety. There's certainly money in the family. 
she had had some some mix mix ups uh, along the way, but something had to be attractive because you know this is not uh, this is definitely a, a, a divergence from you know any Native American or, or Indigenous peoples theme. And here it's on the album sitting square, and uh, it's, it gets a lot of notoriety. Yeah. So uh, she ends up dying, and it's a tragedy. You know, it's it's much, it plays very much like the Marilyn Monroe kind of a starlet sort of a scenario where she's she's um, been done wrong right. by, by leaders in the industry. She actually had ties to Bob Dylan and, wow. and, uh, and, 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 and interestingly enough, uh, there's some, some dialogue that says that, that, uh, you know, that Bob broke, broke her heart. And wow. that's part of the reason that led to her demise. Mm-hmm. So I think that, that how does that jump over into, into the cult? You know, how does how does he discover? And that's kind of what I wanted to see out of out of the, the, the research digging this up. What I did get is a, a lot more of a big taste for Edie uh, Sedgwick. And right. certainly she was, you know, the twiggy of that period. She's credited with a lot of fashion influences and then the tragedy right. uh, that you see of uh, losing someone at a young age. And there's speculation that it was suicide. And I think that that's why in, in the, the actual uh, lyric is, why did you kiss the world goodbye, mm-hmm. child baby? Right. And right. so I, I think Ian, uh, maybe he's reaching out much the same way Elton John does when he talks about the loss of life uh, with Marilyn Monroe. Right. So right. I, I, you know, your artists are, are tend, tend to be very emotional and something hitting. And, and he translated it well. On this yeah. particular track, I it hit me. I liked it. I, I did want to know because I, I really, I'll be honest with you, I didn't know who the freaking, I didn't know what to think about uh, the the title. I really didn't realize that Edie was someone's name. I thought he, right. I, I could hear Chow Baby. Right. But, yeah. um, <laughs> again, uh, with Ian, he he surprises you, and that's one of the. That was a pleasant surprise. Certainly, that the that particular track stood out, and it has good legs on its own. Yeah, it's a it's a great song. That's one of my favorite songs on the album. Then, of course, "Sweet Soul Sister," phenomenal song, a hit song, right? And again, uh, that's "Sweet Soul Sister." I mean, you can say it, but man, you got to sing it too. Exactly, it's hard to say it. You got to sing it when you say it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So no, uh, again, "Sweet Soul Sister," uh, uh, another one of the the, the four that, that landed up upward of the twenty mark on the the hits. Mm-hmm. So certainly, I know that that. It was interesting because uh, Billy Duffy said he wrote that they, they put this album out because they needed an, a, 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 an American platinum album. Mm. That was the driving thing. Right. It's almost like he said, you know, we need to do a platinum album. Yeah. And so this is what we're going to do. Yeah. And I'm thinking, why just, you know, how, he's, his quote is attributed to the point that he was wanting to gift that to the audience. And I'm thinking, OK, well, that's. There's a there's a, again a, a harken to that to that arrogance or that that creative uh, juice that says, hey, we know where we want to go with our music. We don't want to be hyper commercial, right? We want to touch veins that say, hey, you guys deserve. We deserve that level. And, and it's interesting again, platinum. So it's yeah, it, it works. It, <laughs> it worked. Whether yeah. it was prophetic or what, or maybe he's hindsight in it. Who knows? But yeah. but. Uh, Billy's on record as saying that they, they the, this was the gift. This was something that they wanted to do that would be a platinum. So, and it, it's all, not not apologetic in any way. He just says, you know, maybe a little more commercial in in some ways. And I think that they're kind of band that would t- it was probably always searching to grow. Right, right. Now this this album came out kind of at the end of the of the vinyl 
era because mm-hmm. by now we're we're fully into CDs coming out. Cassettes are still being made, and I only bring that up because you know if if I remember it at one of the radio stations I worked at, we actually had this album on vinyl. Mm-hmm. And my point is, I prefer side one <laughs> to side. <laughs> side two is not side two is not bad, but I think side one. And I'm trying to remember. I think it ends with "Sweet Soul Sister" is at the end of side one. I can't remember. And then you, I, I think you're right. The the other ones, Soul Soul Asylum kicks off side two. I just, if I had to, I mean, you look at side one. Okay, every single track on side one is a killer in my mm-hmm. opinion. side two they're not bad but it just to me doesn't have the same oomph as well uh, side one. again there's a divergence uh you look at, at new york city and hell's kitchen i don't know whether it is a dmz i mean yeah. not not a typical lyric you'd throw in there right. hell's kitchen is a dmz and you're yeah. like okay um, not sure that's one I'll sing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, you know, not in mid America. I don't know. It, it doesn't come off like Sweet Soul Sister. I so I get you. It's not rolling off the tongue, but it does tell you that they're they were going to diverge. They're going to put other artistic talents in towards to to these lyrics, and some are, are going to fall a little shy of of what initially was attractive to us. Right. But it does expose you. It opens up. So I, I agree with you. I wasn't. Again, having plopped this CD in the tray, into the tray, listened to this round round the clock. It wasn't because I was listening intently on that second side, but I did pick up a lot of it. So right. you, you know, you, it's good music. There's nothing wrong with 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 the way it drives through. It's certainly uh, memorable in its own way. But yeah, I don't think it's the same infatuation I had with and, with the, the front side. And here's the thing, right? As as artsy fartsy as Ian is, he knows how to write a hook. Right. And oh, yeah. between between the two of them, between he and Billy, they can write hooks and, and there's a craft to that. Right. And that's what what draws me in. Again, it's that mixture of the the chorusy, textury, alternative stuff with the crunchy guitars. I, I almost laugh when I see them listed as a heavy metal band, because to me, <laughs> they're not heavy metal. I mean, you listen to them versus Judas Priest or, mm-hmm. or or even a hard rock band of the time, and they're completely different. Both cool, mm-hmm. but completely different. And so you can't Agreed. really... You can't really call them a heavy metal band. But, you know, it's interesting. Interesting for this standpoint, you know, you, you tours support albums, right? There's a marketing aspect of this. Uh, the cult had the choice. They had a choice. Ozzy Osbourne or Metallica. Yeah. And it was a conscious choice. Now, you know, you and I, Ozzy. Yeah, we'd be exactly. with Ozzy. But the, the, the thought, Billy uh, W is on record saying that he just thought the Ozzy crowd was too Black Sabbath and, and Ozzy-centric and wouldn't right. get a grip on their, on their, what they were trying to bring. He thought again, Metallica was young. Mm-hmm. They're more akin to the same age. So, so they're thinking this is a vein in which we could plug into the rock. And in, in, and sadly, I don't think that the fans, I don't think it, you know, in terms of, uh, uh, as the tour went on, I don't think the fans appreciated the cult in as a metallic Metallica opening or opener, Right. Uh, as much as what we'd hoped. And I think that, again, Billy's t- trying to, to use this as a springboard to say, you know, we want to go see places in America. Uh, I, they want to be back. They want it to be a, 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 a kind of a, 
a chance to be exposed with the young talents like Metallica. Mm-hmm. So he's thinking Metallica, but make no mistake. They got booed. In yeah. fact, some of the, if you read the, some of the, the books that, that, I mean, some of the, the literature that, that Matt Sorum puts out about some of the things that they had to endure, obviously the fans came to see Metallica. Right. And, and I, you know, you, it's hard to vision, but the cult wasn't enough for them. And that, and some, so not all venues, and right. so it is interesting because of the fact that what was on the radio. And if that's what well, I was saying, you know, you got to figure what are we, what were we listening to at that time? Yeah. And, and I think that's, that's the challenge they had is it's, are we going to appeal to the hard rock metal fans? Are we going to appeal more to the pop fans, more to the alternative fans? So they're, they're kind of straddling all of these, I don't know if you can straddle three things. You really can't, can you? <laughs> so, I don't know. It'd be tough. Yeah, but they're, they're straddling these three potential markets. And to your point, they, they opened for Metallica. And yeah, it was not always good for them to be opening. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Portland evidently was, was it was a terrible experience because uh, you, it's mentioned many times in the interviews as to the different things, antiques that were played, but uh, harsh crowds. Yeah. And, uh, and it, I think it does take a toll on the group to, you know, to be told and, and the critics weren't nice to them. I mean, if you go to just some, you know, any of the resources that you look at, you read what their critics are saying. They're not being right. kind. I mean, words like stupid. I mean, oh, yeah, yeah. Want to be classics, things like this. So in testament to the cult and to Ian and to Billy and the guys that did it, I mean, you have to have fixed skin if the people are calling you that and you're still churning out good music. They knew their vein and it, it was trying, it almost like they had to fight to get that. So yeah. I do like it. I appreciate the album for that context. And it, it for me, uh, again, it, it, it was a love affair that I could get from those driving quarter riffs kind of riffs and, and seeing what Billy was throwing out. Uh, interestingly enough, I had to have a toll, take a toll on the group. And that may be the answer for why there was such a, a turmoil of, of members. Ian goes on after, after to explain why he, he, we, the band had such turmoil uh, by saying that the pressure of doing such a long grinding album and, and follow up through tour that he really felt that the band had reached a, the, the, a breaking point. You know, right. so the pressures of doing this for, for so long, the wear and the tear of being on the road, the pressure that it creates to, to make a record of this nature. You know, we should have taken a break, but we didn't. Yeah. That's his answer. We went straight into to, to ceremony. And so, and of course, there's the strife that associated with that. So let me, let me throw something out here and I don't want anyone to laugh when I say this, right. But I am a huge Carpenters fan. And I just, <laughs> just I just watched. I, I, I'm not sure I needed to know that. Jeremy. I, just, I just watched a documentary about the Carpenters. And surprisingly, I'm watching this documentary at the same time. I'm kind of watching documentaries and videos about the cult. And there were so many similarities and it was, and it all came back to the pressure, right? The pressure of always having to be on, always performing the physical pressure you're traveling with Karen. It was exhibited with weight loss. Uh, Her brother, Richard was addicted to sleeping pills and, and you, you know, they're this, they're this squeaky clean group. Karen Carpenter, one of the greatest voices of all time, by the way, but the same thing with, with the cult, right. And, and, and with almost any band, if you look at it, just the gruel, the gruel, the, the grueling nature of, 
of being on the road and the demands of their, Oh, great guys. You're back from a successful tour. Now let's make another album. You know, I mean, and it just goes on and on and on. And that, and, and we see that repeated with the cult where the toll that it takes on them personally, on their families, on, on everything. Yeah. It's kind of sad really. When you yeah. Look. And and then who was left after yeah. that, you know, right. think about it. Matt Swarm goes on to Guns N' Roses. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is the last album that the bass player plays on, you know, it, it comes down to that. They're re they're reforming. Yeah. Sometimes uh, in, they're reforming in, in, for every album, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, I don't know that, that, it takes away. I don't know that I would want to say it distracts from, from who the cult was or the music, because we said it earlier, you know, the driving forces, the, all the lyric component, the melody component really was emanating from those two personalities. Yeah. And and it was interesting to see how that relationship and then how the, it, it imploded. So, yeah. uh, uh, and sometimes some of the, the most beautiful art comes out of pain and maybe yeah. that's, maybe that's where they were yeah. uh, investigating. Yeah. So, so I want, I do want to thing, bring up one thing that I thought was very interesting, which I was not aware of this. Ian Asbury was the first person that was approached to play Jim Morrison in the movie, the doors, right? Yeah. He was the first one approached and he, he didn't want to do it because he didn't like the way that Morrison was being portrayed. He was a big Jim Morrison fan. Yeah. And that's when Val Kilmer who did a great job, you know, then they, they got Val Kilmer to do it, but it it's just interesting that Ian Asbury was their first choice. And I could totally see that he would have been great mm-hmm. in that role. And he actually toured with the other members of the doors <laughs> as the doors. And that, again, that was a whole nother le- legal debacle where exactly. Robbie, it's almost like he was yeah. drawn to, to conflict. I, you know, again, yeah. what's the, what's the odds exactly. in one lifetime? To get all of this, so so there was a lot of drama around that, but it was just interesting that this was the guy. Uh, you know, there's a, but there's some similarities there too, Jeremy. Totally. Uh, yep. Because again, uh, one of the one of the of Matt Sorms knocks on on the departure and sets on his way out. He said at the end of the tour, I mean, Ian had pretty much become a, a you know straight out alcoholic. Oh his, yeah, his weight had had, had, had uh, soared up to new heights, and it was affecting his vocals and. I, I guess the riff that actually that came between Billy and Matt was Billy felt like Matt was Ian's drinking buddy in mm-hmm. part of the problem right. uh, that was leading to this demise. And so that that may have been the, the writing on the wall right there. But it might be worth noting that, of course, Jim Morrison, after, you know, when his hiatus from the doors or exit from the doors, certainly he was of the same nature. The yeah. weight was a problem. Uh, it affected his ability to sing. His level of cognition at times yeah. was was questionable. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a quote saying that Ian was muttering through uh, in between lyrics uh, on stage, uh, lost, losing the audience because they couldn't follow. But, you know, I that's kind of his hallmark. I kind of thought he, he, he like, this is where it all ends. Well, yeah. you know, he would always come in with some kind of muttering. That's so I'm not sure that, that that was, but, but, but Matt Sorm, Sorm, he says that, that, that was what it was. And to the, even to the point where Ian was asking him to, to back up vocals and they were, you know, he was mic'd up on the drum set, drum kit and was, was singing. And that's what drove Billy to say, Hey, you're part of, you're the enabler. Yeah, yeah. You wouldn't be losing Ian if this wasn't the case. And I, I, that's all from from one context. I'm not sure that you can mark that up as as being bona fide, but certainly it's worth it. Uh, it's noteworthy because it, it does parallel the doors. Right. For sure. Interesting. 
JR, this has been a great conversation. We'll we'll definitely be having you back, but not to talk about the Colt. You'll have to talk about some Millie Vanilli. Maybe I'll have to bring a, some. I'll have to bring a, a better game. Uh, no, uh, I, you're right. I, I, I'm, I'm more than one horse here. I, <laughs> I think I could bring in Millie Vanilli, and I'll be honest with you. I wouldn't be afraid to touch Millie Vanilli, but I don't think it's in this the correct vein. Well, maybe not, but but again, I've al- I've already admitted I'm a big Carpenters fan. So what have I got to lose? You're, you're, let's not let's just keep some of that in the closet. I just, this, this I just think car Millie, Millie Vanilli had was great pop stuff, regardless of who actually sang. There was some good pop stuff if, if you're a fan of pop music. That's well, for another. Are. That's for another conversation. Uh, okay, exactly. That's for another <laughs> conversation. I, I do feel you though. I do want to go on record as uh, yes, I could. <laughs> Millie Vanilli could could probably be heard in my <laughs> in my office from time to time. But let's again. We were our commitment to you, the home viewer, is we will never discuss Millie Vanilli again on this podcast. That's right. That's right. right. It has no place. Well, awesome, Jr. Thanks for joining. And Again, my pleasure. I want to thank all of you for joining. And uh, please follow us on Twitter. Follow our low-budget YouTube channel. And if you haven't yet, please uh, subscribe to the podcast. Follow us. Share it. We really appreciate it. We want to say thanks one more time to our friends at Dick Picks in Australia. They make some phenomenal picks. You have some picks on the way, JR. I'm sending you some. Hey, man, I, I certainly, certainly. This is going to rock. It's going to be great. So we want to thank Dick Picks also. And we will see you on the next episode of the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. Take care. Say bye, JR. Bye, JR. Thanks for listening to the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. Oh, sweetie. Please like, subscribe, and share. You can email us at classicguitarrock at mail.com. We're not ordinary people. We're morons. We'll see you for the next episode of the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought.